Ten years ago today, I was still in seminary. I've been married for two years. I've been a father for five weeks. And I woke up like any other day, uh, more tired than I felt like I should be, uh, and nevertheless needing to go to class and to work that day. We were in preaching class that morning, and it was a very large class. It was one of the, the basic level preaching classes that everyone had to take. And frankly, I was bored that morning because much of what the professor was talking about, though helpful, was things I'd already learned in college, and I was kind of in zone-out mode, aimlessly underlining what I thought would be key sentences on the exam. Uh, when the class was over, I quickly walked across campus back to my apartment, uh, turned on the news, and began getting ready for work that I had to leave for in about 30 minutes. At first, the news was showing the World Trade Center smoking, and I thought it was old footage of the 1993 bombing that had taken place. And then I realized the smoke was coming from the top, that the news was saying it was live, and that something was wrong. So I woke my wife, who in turn began watching the news and woke up our, at that time, pretty small son, Joshua, though you wouldn't know it to look at him now. And it wasn't long as I was beginning to get ready for work, trying to to shave, that Melinda and I had the horror of watching United Flight 175 strike the South Tower. Even then, it was obvious that things would not be the same. And as I watched my wife clutching a very small child, I kissed them both goodbye, leaving for work, wondering how the day would end and what history would bring in the coming days and weeks. What kind of a world have we brought our son into? Now we know how that day ended. It was a tragic day, more tragic than we could have imagined. New York City was never the same. This country was never the same. What was once an almost completely unknown word became an infernal part of our regular vocabulary, Al-Qaeda. Everything changed that day. In fact, I'm not sure a week has gone by since. I tried to think back just in the last few months, the last few years. I tried to, to push my memory back and to see, could I remember even a week when there was not something on the news, something going on that was not a direct or indirect result of September 11th, 2001. And I couldn't remember any. Even to this day, we have troops overseas. We worry about mosques being built around us. We have alerts and updates to terror threats and on and on and on. And in all of this, collectively as a country, we have had to come to grips with the fact that there is an entire network of people all over the world who are coming to this country with one intent only to destroy us. It's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought as an American, but... My thought needs to be expanded as a Christian. And as a gathering of Christians this morning, our thoughts have to go beyond just the threat of terrorism that has changed for us. We have to think about more than just how to correctly pack our toiletries, whether or not to wear a belt when we fly, worrying more about buying generators and getting passports and following travel warnings. As Christians, we have to ask, how has September 11th affected us and how we go about living for God and serving God and seeking to fulfill His great commission. How should we think about the dangers and the threats of the 21st century in light of the task the risen Christ we have just sung about and given worship to has called us to? How will September 11th and our situation today, 10 years on, affect our ability to make disciples of all nations? 
This is what we want to think about this morning, and we want to do so by looking to Matthew chapter 24. We begin with this hopeful word in verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This morning we want to think about finishing the mission. We want to think about how it will be done and what it will take to be done. And we have two points to make this morning, two realities about finishing the mission God has caused, called us to. And the first point that we have comes to us from this verse. Here we see the promise of finishing the mission. The promise of finishing the mission. That's essentially what Jesus gives his disciples and to us this morning, a promise that the task of global disciple making will one day be complete. One day the task will be finished. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, not might be proclaimed, not should be proclaimed. It will be proclaimed throughout the whole world to a testimony to all the nations. And then the end, the end of all things will come. The very thing that Jesus calls all of his disciples to and and will, in fact, happen. There's not a question about it. We need not lay awake at night wondering about it, worrying about it. We do not need to lose heart when we have apparent lack of success in our endeavors. Ultimately, the mission will be finished. Nevertheless, we have to understand what that means. What will it look like? For the great commission to be fulfilled. Notice first that Jesus says the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. The mission of the church is directly tied to the message of the gospel. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, write that down. The the mission of the church is tied directly to the message of the gospel. We can do lots of other things as a church. We can engage on many levels of society and culture and seek to just improve the conditions of living around us, whether it's uh, from uh, people that live in lower income housing and are impoverished, or maybe it's the vast, incredibly vast network of uh, human trafficking that goes on today. We, we can help put an end and make improvements to all these things, and yet at its core, what we do as a church, who we are as God's people has to be rooted in and tied to the message of the gospel. Why is that? Because you can have someone wealthy and and freed from slavery and still die and go to hell. The reality is, no one gets saved without hearing the gospel of Christ and believing in Him. There's no purgatory, there's no second chances after death, there's no pardon for people who have never heard. Humanity stands justly condemned for their rebellion against God. I heard someone the other day and say, so you believe people go to hell because they don't believe in Jesus? And I said, no. The Bible says people go to hell for their sins. In our selfishness, in our idolatry our worship of false gods, we have seen, and even without this book, we have seen in nature there is a creator God. That's what Paul argues in Romans 1. We have seen there is a God out there, but we have chosen not to respond to him. We have chosen to, to fashion a God in our own image, perhaps even ourselves, and to worship it instead. And God says, for this reason, the relationship we should have as humanity with our creator has been broken. We have said, no, thank you. And therefore we have gone our own way rather than the way that we should. We have lived how we wanted rather than how the God who made us says we should live. And therefore we are justly condemned for our sins. The only way 
to find forgiveness from that sin, to find freedom from that sin, to be free from the eternal consequences of that sin, is by looking to Jesus Christ as the one and only mediator between a sinful, rebellious humanity and a holy and righteous God. One must believe that Christ satisfied God's wrath against your sins on the cross. We must believe that Christ wasn't held by death. He didn't stay dead, but rose back to life and now reigns as the King of all things. One to be trusted and obeyed and followed in every way. Even this morning, if you are here and you are not a Christian, you're not a regular churchgoer, we invite you to understand Christianity is not about really even what takes place here. It's not about local church membership, although we encourage that. It is about Jesus Christ. It's about looking to Him for your forgiveness of sins and Him alone. And whether you stay here forever as a member and live and die, that's great, but frankly, that's secondary in our minds. What is primary is you look to Christ and Him alone and find forgiveness of sins. But how are people to believe in Christ unless they hear about Him? Can't believe in something you've never heard of before. Can't believe in something you don't understand and don't know. Therefore, the gospel, Jesus says, must be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations. And notice that that emphasis on the nations. This is where the gospel is going. This gospel, the kingdom, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Now, what's the significance of this? What's the significance of that word, nations? Typically, if we talk about nations, we think about uh, social political entities. We think about the United States of America. That's a nation. Think about Canada. That's a nation. Often we call it America's hat. You know, it's just right on top there. Uh, you know, uh, all, all kinds of things. We, we think that's how we think about nations, right? But that's not what Paul, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. The original word is ethne, and the way that it's used has to do more about peoples than nations. By peoples, I mean people groups, distinct groups with their own unique culture. So, for example, in biblical times, we can think about Jebusites, Hittites, Canaanites, Israelites. They would all live in the the geographical region of Canaan, what we may even call a political state, although it wasn't that at the time. But they all had their own unique cultures. They all worshipped their own gods. They all had their own way of cooking food and raising their kids. They were all distinct in their cultures, even though they lived compact right in this small area. Even today. If you were going to a country like Niger, which we've been to before, you would find a people called the Fulani. You would find a people called the Tamashek, the Songhai, the Hausa, all, and so many more. And these are all distinct people groups, and yet they all live within the geopolitical boundaries of a country called Niger. Okay? Today, we have the United States of America, right? And we have people coming from all over the world. So much so, when I was in New York City, you hear about it on television, but you see it. You have Chinatown, and you have Little Italy, and you have these kind of little enclaves where though they are American, they they kind of keep a certain cultural identity, right? We have, even here, uh, uh, Ojibwe and and Navajo peoples that that though they are within the borders of the United States, they are their own separate people group. What's, What's my point in all this? My point is, Jesus says it's not enough just to go to the United States and plant one church in one nation and say, the task is done. He says we must go to every people group and and plant a church there. There must be their own distinct gospel witness among each of those groups. And frankly, this understanding of the task Jesus calls us to was almost forgotten among Western Christians and the missions movement up until around 1974. 
Christians were looking at the world and they were saying, there's a church in almost every country in the world. We've almost finished the task. We're almost done with the Great Commission. A man, a man by the name of Ralph Winter spoke at the Lausanne International Congress on World Evangelization. And he helped the missionaries see what Bible scholars had known for years, and that is this. The nations talked about here are not political groups, but ethno-linguistic peoples, not defined by political boundaries. And when that clicked, and the map was redrawn in terms of mission task, it was clear that almost two and a half billion people were being overlooked by Christian missionaries. Because they had not thought in terms of people groups, but only political nations. What's my point in all this? My point is this. The aim of our mission is not just to see everyone saved. Our aim is not just to take the gospel to every single person that lives. There's nothing wrong with that goal. That's great. But that's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission says go to every people group. That means our mission's thinking and therefore our mission strategy must reflect that, much like Paul's did, the Apostle Paul. Do you remember Romans 15? Paul says something about his calling and his mission as, a, as, a, as an apostle of Christ, as a, as a church planting, uh, pioneer, frontier missions uh, theologian. And it, it sounds quite audacious at first. Listen to what he says. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Did you catch what he said? Paul says that he finished, he fulfilled, he completed the mission of gospel ministry from Jerusalem to what is now modern Albania. He says, I'm done. I've been there and I'm moving on. Did that mean every single person was a Christian? No, not at all. Tens of thousands of people were in there. How in the world could Paul say he was done there? He completed the Great Commission there. Simply this. Each of those regions, each of those people groups had healthy, vibrant, growing, self-sustaining churches. There was a, a, a solid, self-sustained gospel presence in, among each of those peoples. And therefore, Paul said, in one sense, the Great Commission's done. I need to move on. I need to go where Jesus has never been named, where there is no gospel witness, where you can't just get up on a Sunday morning and go down the street to a church. I need to go to those places and preach Christ. So Paul understands the Great Commission to be one of going where Christ has not been named. And think about what that means. If he didn't believe that, why would he have ever left his hometown of Antioch? Other than the fact that God said, go. But why would he have left practically? That person down the street's never, he's not saved yet. I need to keep preaching to him. And that person down the road, they, they're not saved yet. I need to keep preaching to him. Yes, there's first, uh, we won't say first Baptist, but there's first Antioch church down the road, right? But we need to keep, no, no, he said there's a church here. It's a growing church. There's sending missionaries all. I, I must go where Christ has not been complaining. Likewise for us. Should, should, we, should we share the gospel with our neighbor? Should we share the gospel with our city, with our country? Absolutely. Please do not walk out of here and say, Pastor John says, no need to evangelize anymore. It's all missions. It's all missions. Don't, don't walk out of here and say, I'm not saying that. 
Okay? Please understand, I am not saying that. If you find a person who is not a Christian, you share Christ with them. And you call them to faith. That, that is the lifestyle that we are to live. But if that's all we think about, if that's all we think about in terms of the Great Commission, the mission we've been called to, and that is individuals being saved, guess what? We'll never leave Bay City with the Gospel. Because all of Bay City is not going to be saved in our lifetime. We can go door to door every day, every year, and there's still going to be lost people. And we're going to keep going, knock on the same doors again and again and again and again and again. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But we've also got to be thinking like Paul and saying there are entire people groups, over 6,000. And there's no Bible, there's no church, there's no Christianity, there's no one who knows the name of Jesus in our language or in theirs. And Paul says, I've got to be going there too. So what does he do? He tells Timothy, doesn't he? Picks up Timothy, and he goes to an established church. The, the church at Ephesus, a growing, vibrant church. But he tells Timothy, you stay here, and you encourage this church, and I'm moving on. So Paul says there is a place for domestic, hometown, backyard, neighborhood missions. Do that. It's good. Continue to build and strengthen churches. But there's also a place. In fact, there is a priority to go where Jesus has not been named. So while we continue to seek the salvation of sinners all around us, we also must give weight to the sending and the going and the giving towards the unreached peoples of the world. That's what Paul did, and that's what we should do as well. Even while we do local ministry, we are serving as a launch pad to get people and resources and prayers out to those unreached peoples. But what if we don't? What if we don't do that? What's going to happen? The mission will still be finished. The mission will still be finished. Because the reality is God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us to finish the mission. He doesn't need this church. He doesn't need this denomination. He will finish the mission any way he wants to. The question is this. Are we going to miss out on the privilege? Are we going to miss out on the blessing? Are we going to miss out on the act of obedience to be a part of finishing the mission are we just going to sit on the sidelines, only fulfilling part of the mission? That, that's the reality before us. How much better to actually be serving our king the way he calls us to? How much better if we join the master in what he wants to do in terms of finishing the mission? There is the promise from Jesus that the mission will be finished. But we also have to understand the context in which this promise is given. There's not just a promise, there's also a cost. This is the second thing that we want to see this morning. The cost of finishing the mission. The cost of finishing the mission. Matthew 24, 14 is a glorious verse that gives us hope as we move closer and closer to the end. But we need to understand how it's going to happen. The context of Matthew 24 is this. Jesus is telling his disciples about the end of all things. He's telling them about the time of his impending return after his death and resurrection. He begins by describing the destruction of the temple. And at understandably, the disciples are kind of like, what are you talking about? The temple is gone? And Jesus says, yeah. And so we read in, in verse 3, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming at the close of the age? Jesus, when is it going to happen? How are we going to know? This sounds disastrous. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus says, we're just getting started with those things before the end comes. Verse 9. Then, then they will deliver you up to tribulation, tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is the cost of finishing the mission. This is how Jesus says... All the nations will come to hear the gospel. How the good news will be a testimony to them through suffering. Jesus says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Even in the midst of growing coldness and increasing sinfulness and lovelessness, even among those who profess to be God's people, Jesus says there will be those who endure to the end. There will be those who refuse to bow the knee and be driven only by security and safety and ease of life, those who will refuse to bow the knee to ungodly leaders and false teaching, who say you should reject Christianity, and the result will be they will suffer. The result will be Christians who are mocked and abused, all for the sake of Christ. Yet it will be through their faithfulness that the mission will be finished, and then the end will come. Suffering and even martyrdom become the very means by which the gospel goes forward and the mission is finished. Again, this is what Paul believed. This is how he lived. When he writes his letter to the, to the Philippian Christians, he is in prison. He is in chains dictating the letter as someone else is writing. And what does he write? He says this in chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, the fact that I'm in prison now, What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Do you catch what Paul is saying there? He says... That my sufferings, my imprisonment were the means by which the gospel penetrated the Roman prison system. Can you imagine the guards each day as they rotate having to stay and watch over Paul? Hey, you know why I'm in here? Yeah, who'd you kill? I didn't kill anybody. What'd you steal? Didn't steal anybody. Well, why are you in here? Because I don't say Caesar is Lord. I say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of all things. And he died even for you, Roman centurion. And there would have been some that would have listened with rapt attention. And there have been others that probably would have went in and wrapped Paul over the head. And increased his suffering. And yet it became known, either by directly listening to Paul, or by the guys talking together at the chow line, this dude Paul is here Not because he's actually done anything wrong, like we would think. It's because he believes Jesus is the Son of God, and therefore the Lord of all things, even to be obeyed more than Caesar. 
But more than that, it says, because of my imprisonment, because even in prison, the brothers, the other Christians have seen my boldness. What's happened? They've got more bold. They've been more willing to put themselves out there and preach the gospel, and therefore, it has spread. Suffering became the means, the ordained means of God by which the gospel has gone forward. Sometimes, you know, it is our very suffering and our endurance too that opens the doors to stony hearts. J. Oswald Sanders is a man who spent several years working with the OMF, the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, the mission agency originally started by Hudson Taylor decades earlier. During a sermon he gave once, Sanders told the story of an evangelist in India who walked across the various roads to all manner of villages preaching the gospel. He was a simple man. He had no formal education, but he loved Jesus and had taken seriously his command to make disciples. And so he would go to village to village to village, walking for the sake of Christ. One day he came to a village at the end, almost the end of the day. He was tired. He was wore out, but he went to the center of the village and began to preach Christ. And almost immediately he was mocked, he was derided, and he was ran out of town. Physically tired, emotionally spent, he went to a tree outside of town and lay down to sleep. A few hours later, he woke up startled when it seemed like the whole town was standing around him, looking at him. He probably thought, well, this is it. This mission trip's coming to an end. One of the biggest men in the village stepped out from the rest, and the man kind of cringed a little. But the man said this, We came out to see what kind of man you were. When we saw your blistered feet, we knew you were a holy man. We want, to, we want you to tell us why you got blistered feet just to come and talk to us. They saw the very small but clear mark of his suffering. Feet bleeding And blistered from walking mile upon mile upon mile upon mile in dirt and rocky roads just to tell people about Jesus. And they said, if you're willing to do that for us, we want to hear what you have to say. It's not hard to understand why Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. This morning we have seen the promise and we have seen the cost of finishing the task that we've been called to as Christ's people. And the point of preaching this this morning in some way is this. We understand all of this is not just theory. At some point the rubber has to meet the road and we have to start making decisions about how we do missions. And though September 11th is certainly wrapped up in this, I think it was simply God's providence that all these things came together on this day and in this way as it will be made known very quickly. Because what we have before us is a decision that involves both the promise of finishing the mission and the cost of finishing the mission. Since 2007, this church has been in partnership with mission work among the Tomashek people that we've already mentioned this morning in the country of Niger or Niger. This involves regularly praying for the people Encouraging the field missionaries, supporting the work as we give money and resources and time. It also involves engaging in trips to assist them in their work. And we have had a a trip in the works for over a year now that has been pushed back because of security reasons. And those security reasons linger and the time has come where we have to now decide, are we going to postpone the trip again or are we going to go? 
In other words, the question is this. Are we going to go to Niger this January despite the risk? Understand what we are not asking. We're not asking, is it safe to go? It's not safe. It's not safe. The question we're asking is, is the risk involved outweighed by the ministry that can be accomplished by our going? That's the question we're asking. So how do we come to make a decision like this? Well, first of all, we need to think through the details of the situation. And then we need to think, as we've already done this morning, about what the biblical text says, about what Jesus and apostles teach us about how and why to be on the task of global missions. At the end of the service today, you'll receive a booklet, if you choose to take it, that looks just like this. And it will give much more detail about these things. But this morning, I want to highlight a couple of things for you as we think through this situation. First of all, there is a stated threat from, guess who? Ten years later, Al-Qaeda. The State Department is recommending restricted travel within the country of Niger for this very reason. And this is not just a stated threat. There have been some clear examples of their activity in the country. One Frenchman was kidnapped and held for ransom. Two others were attempted, uh, uh, attempted to be kidnapped and were killed shortly after. That being said, we have long-term personnel, missionaries that we support, that work for us and seem unaffected by the threat, who live on the edge of the restricted travel zone. When we think about the work that they've asked us to do, one of the questions we said was, uh, we know a lot of their projects, they just need money. Would it be better if we took the, the resource we would have spent on air travel and visas and, and so many other things and just gave them the money? The task they are calling us to can't be done as a home project. They're asking us to be involved directly in local disciple-making, working one-on-one with, with Muslims and with uh, newborn Christians that need discipling. The Tamajic people are an unreached people group with few Christians and no self-sustaining churches. Now, from what we've already heard, on, on some level, frankly, part of us should just want to say, well, let's just go. What, what difference does it make? But when we look at Acts and we look at the biblical data, we see it's not necessarily as clear as we might like. Paul knew when it was time to sneak out of town and when it was time to stay and suffer for Christ. You read Acts chapter 9 and chapter 14. There were times when the pressure cooker ignited and he left. And there were other times the pressure cooker ignited and he stayed. And he took lumps. He suffered for Christ's sake. We know we're told to be involved in mission work even until Christ himself comes back, until... Every unreached people has a gospel witness. We know that doing missions will always involve risk on some level. And frankly, as we approach the end, as we begin to penetrate those those hardest to reach peoples, the risk is only going to increase. It's not going to decrease. We also know that suffering, even death, is often used to advance God's purposes. So what do we do? What do we do? Do we go? Or do we stay? We've postponed this, postponed this trip once before already for safety. We may have to do that again. But we may also go despite the risk that we face. Either way, the decision is approaching. We have to decide by October 1st if we're going to get airline tickets and be able to be immunized for this trip. Therefore, the elders of this church are calling for all of its members to enter into a time of prayer and fasting for three weeks from Today, September 11th until September 30th, we are asking every member of Crossway to spend significant time seeking God's will for this decision that will be made at the end of those three weeks. 
How do we want you to pray? Four things. And you don't need to write these down. Just grab this blue book on the way out. Just listen. We want you to pray in four ways. First, believing passages like Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is inside. And James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We are asking you to ask God to give us wisdom. To help us take what we know of the situation, what we know of His Word, and apply those things together that we might know how to respond. Ask Him to fill us with a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Secondly, believing texts like Psalm 121, which says, From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. And Genesis eighteen twenty five, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? We want you to ask God to help us trust Him with this decision, to take our eyes of reliance off of everything else but Him and Him alone. Third, believing Jesus, who said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will save it for mine's sake. And the, believing the command of Hebrews 12, which says, Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so easily, and run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Believing those things, we ask that the decision that we come to will be marked by faithfulness to Christ and His gospel mission. Finally, because Peter said, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion and forever and ever. And the psalmist who cried out, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. We want you to ask God to so guide us in our decision making that he would be brought the most glory in our staying or our going. Church, this is not an easy decision, nor is it an unimportant one. So we're asking you to pray with us and to fast with us. To pray and to fast so that the decision will be exactly what God wants, and it will be a decision that by going or by staying, it will help finish the mission that Jesus has called us to. Heavenly Father, it is a wonderful privilege, not just to be called to salvation, to be called to be your people, but to, to be a part of the task of bringing others into your kingdom, of taking the message of Christ to people who have never heard before. Father, we have before us the opportunity to do this very thing. And yet, because of events ten years ago, we now struggle with that decision. Should we go despite the risk, or should we stay being wise, avoiding the risk at this time? Father, even within this room, I'm sure there are people now that have differing ideas. I'm sure some of them don't know what to think because they're not going. Those of us who are going worry about those that we're leaving behind. Father, in all these things, we pray that 
you would so show us your glory. That you would show, pour out your spirit of wisdom upon us. That we would be so energized, even in our pursuit of holiness before you. That the decision will be made clear in the next three weeks. God, we say this not to put you on a timetable. But because we have a timetable as human beings. God, if it be your will, show us in the next two days. Or the next week. God, we just pray that in our desire to be faithful to you and to bring glory to your name and to be obedient to the task you've called us, that you would, you would make clear to us what your will for our life is in this matter. God, we ask this in the name of your Son, that precious name, the one who died for us and lives forevermore, Jesus Christ. Amen.